Welcome back to yet another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers, the shakers, the movie and TV makers, the producers, writers, directors, actors, costume designers, composers, sound editors, sound mixers, film editors, you name it, we talk to them. Uh, And right now we are in the midst of award season. Uh, Tomorrow, uh, we actually, Spirit Award nominations will be announced. Uh, I have to turn in my votes, uh, my nominations tonight for Hollywood Critics Association. Uh, I have a very eclectic list, but rest assured, with my nominations for Best Picture, The Outpost is number one on my list. Uh, And as is Caleb Landry Jones in one of the male acting categories. Um, But we'll see how that plays out uh, when the final nominations for HCA are announced uh, in February. And then our awards will be done virtually March 5th. Uh, We've got Academy Awards. We've got BAFTAs coming up. We've got Golden Globes. It's very interesting with... um, a lot of stuff being done virtually, um, and then a lot of festivals are going to uh, will be happening. Some of the big ones, uh, Sundance, virtual Sundance, virtual. Can you believe it? Um, but if you want snow, just come to Southern California. We got snow right now. Um, but welcome, welcome. You know where you can find Behind the Lens every Monday right here on AdrenalineRadio.com, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. You miss us live? Then we become a podcast on all the various and sundry podcast platforms as well as BehindTheLensOnline.net. Movie reviews, interviews, trailers, and other cool stuff pops up on BehindTheLensOnline.net when I get around to getting it up there. Um... (laughs) because <laughs> it's just me. So, always something cooking. Always something. Very, very, very excited about today's show. Joining us at the midpoint of the show is a brand new director, Tyler Wayne. Writer, director, actor. He stars in uh, his debut feature, uh, directorial, Goodbye Butterfly. Uh it's dramatic. It's a murder mystery. Um, we're dealing with a father seeking revenge for the person that killed his five-year-old daughter. Uh, I can't wait to talk to Tyler about it. It's a very straightforward form of storytelling. It's cleanly executed, but there are some nice twists in there, along with some ambiguity that he creates as to who done it. So... That'll be at the midpoint of the show. Before then, you're going to get to hear my exclusive pre-recorded interview with Sean Patrick Flannery uh, talking about his screen official screenwriting feature debut, Born a Champion, which he also stars. Um, he plays a black belt, which Sean is in real life. Most of you know him probably from Boondock Saints. The original film, uh, Boondock Saints and then Boondock Saints 2. Um, in Born a Champion, he plays Mickey Kelly, um, one of the first American black belts in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. 
He loses a match. He gets injured. He shouldn't fight again. But some years later, two teens in Saudi Arabia, in Dubai, are watching the video. They're obsessed with with martial arts. They're obsessed with jujitsu. And they watch and watch and watch. And it turns out that the opponent, quote-unquote, cheated. It goes viral, and needless to say, that sets us up for one of these rocky moments that where do you come back into the ring, take on a, a match, meet this opponent again? What do you do? Um, so it's a wonderful story. Uh, the film is very well done. The script is solid. Um, Dennis Quaid is in the film, and I'll see anything with Dennis, as is Reno Wilson. And for those of you that have do not know who Reno Wilson is, go see a film, Boland. Go, you know, see this film, Born a Champion. Um, Reno is incredible. It also stars Maurice Compte, Ali Afshar, uh, and black belt and MMA champion Edson Barboza. And that's one of the great things about Born a Champion. Sean made sure that all of the martial arts, uh, be it uh, practice people, be it students, be it uh, professionals, they are actually in real life MMA, jiu-jitsu professionals. So that there was no issue about people getting hurt. Everybody knew what they were doing. And in a film like this, it's very, very important. Uh, but very fun to talk with Sean about that. But we got a couple minutes here before I have to jump into that time-wise. I just want to mention a couple films that are so much fun. They're tiny little independent films, and I really can't recommend them highly enough. The first one is Psycho Gorman. Oh, my God. This is, it just, it just opened this past weekend. It is one of the coolest and kitschiest genre films to come along in a while. It's from writer-director Steve Kostansky. And he celebrates the batshit fun of the quote-unquote horror sci-fi genre with terrific prosthetics, in-camera and special effects, and Psycho Gorman himself, who has been brought back to life by a brother and sister, two kids... And he is controlled by a gem, which the sister, who is somewhat of a bully and an egomaniacal brat, uh, has control of. So she controls Psycho Gorman. Um, it is, he's an evil alien monster, but oh, my, you want him as your best friend forever. There's heart, humor, and horror. It is so much fun. Um, for the pure joy and escapism. Watch Psycho Gorman. You want a documentary? Here's a really fun one. Volcanic UFO Mysteries from writer-director Darcy Weir. Darcy is known for his documentaries that deal with UFOs, Sasquatch. I spoke with Darcy last year about Sasquatch Among Wild Man. Uh, now he's, and he's done some UFO series before. Now he's back with Volcanic UFO Mysteries which is a lot of fun. He brings in expert Stephen Bassett, just one of a few, who is director of the Paradigm Research Group. He is a, an expert on UFO sightings. 
and a lobbyist on the truth embargo um, that the U.S. government and others have had on UFOs. Now, what's very interesting is that in is a companion to the last stimulus package uh, in December that Congress passed that then-President Trump signed, there was also the defense issues, the defense package. Part of what is in there is a clause that everything on UFOs has to be released within 180 days. Um, It's an obscure little thing that's buried in there, but this will now bring to light, it will essentially, quote-unquote, end the truth embargo. But in the interim, what has happened during the past six months or so, John Greenwald, uh, under the Freedom of Information Act, under FOIA, uh, managed to obtain over 2.2 million pages of documents from the CIA. Um, so, And they're out there for people to, to look at now. So this is going to be a lot of fun for all of the UFO people out there. Uh, all the believers, you're going to have a ton of stuff to look through. But what's so interesting with this documentary, Volcanic UFO Mysteries, is Darcy hones in on Latin America and the inordinate amount of UFO sightings around volcanoes. There is actual footage. Um, it's it's so fascinating, and as he is known for doing in his docs, he always has some fun um, animation thrown in there to set the stage, to keep you engaged. And he does that again here. It's available everywhere. See it, see it, see it. It's interesting. It's fun. And you may even learn a few things. Then there is another another little doc. It's now on VOD and digital called Agent Revelation. It's by writer-director Derek Ting. And it opened, it just opened uh, on the 22nd, I believe, on Friday. And it also stars Michael Dorn, you know, Worf from Star Trek, Next Generation. Agent Agent Revelation is another one. An ancient dust controls humans, and it's unleashed. But it affects Jim Young, who is also played by Derek Ting, uh, who suddenly gets superpowers. And he goes to an underground base. He's trained to be an operative to take on an imminent alien threat and learn why aliens have returned to Earth. It's fascinating, um, the thought processes that Derek has put into this. There's some nice production values and some really nice performances, notably from Michael Dorn. So three very different, very unique, interesting, and fascinating. Fun, fun, fun films for you to check out. But now, without wasting any more time, we're going to delve into Born a Champion and my interview with Sean Patrick Flannery. So take a listen as we talk about the script. Um, This was 13 years in the making. He wrote this script back in 2007. And you're going to hear how he got financing from Lucas Oil. Yeah, all you racing aficionados out there will recognize Lucas Oil as they supply a lot of oil for race cars and sponsor racing teams. So, very interesting. 
how this film came to be. You're going to hear all about it from Sean and the script, the casting, dialogue, um, working with these martial artists. So take a listen to my exclusive interview with Sean Patrick Flannery talking about Born a Champion. Hey, Sean. Hey, Debbie. How you doing? Well, it's it's a thrill to be talking to you again after 20 years. Oh, my God. Really? We the, la- the last time that we ever did an interview was for Boondock 2. Holy cow. Well, pleasure to talk to you again, then. That's beautiful. It's like, and I have watched you, your career over over all these years and just amazed i loved you in trafficked um the, oh, thank you that a powerful film a really great movie well, then, i appreciate it and even things you know like devil's carnival and evil within but oh yeah 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 i i mean you've just been doing it all and you keep consistently working and you consistently get better and now you jump into you put on your writer's hat for Born a Champion, and wow, you knocked it out of the park from script to screen with this one. Oh, I, I, I sincerely appreciate it. That, that, that really makes me feel good. I love this film. It just reached in, grabbed my heart. You've got a lot of the, the final Rocky Balboa film essence to it which i love but we get to that 128 mark about that 90 minute mark and you've got dennis quaid his character of mason meeting with mickey before the fight and he goes into that story about a soldier named o'sullivan staying with his deceased buddy for two days until the body could be extracted and then we get the reveal that the dead soldier was mason's son and how he so wanted to look o'sullivan in the eye and thank him but no one could find him and of course, Mickey is this guy. Oh my, I started crying at that moment and I did not stop for the rest of the film because then we get that line after the fight and we've got Quaid's Mason is cheering and cheering, so happy that Mickey won. And it's like, why are you cheering? Did you switch your bet? It's like, I saw the conviction, I saw it in his eyes. And then you have that spin with the permanent eye injury that Mickey sustained. That all is so powerful, Sean. I don't know how you did it on the page or on screen. Amazing. Well, fr- fr- from my heart, honestly, that, that really makes me feel good. It really does, so thank you. Where did this story begin? You know, the story began, I wrote it alone in my bed back in 2007, and uh, you know, I, I was only a, in this specific martial art. I was only a brown belt at the time, but it had already taken over a major part of my life. I already owned my own jujitsu academy at that point, and it was it, it, this martial art was one of the most monumental things in my life for positive change. You know, if I had to uh, if I had to quantify all of the positive benefits, the vast majority would have been because of a martial arts mat. And I wrote this story about family, about fatherhood, about being a husband, about adversity, and about drive. And I woke up the next morning and I flushed out the story from top to bottom and I sent it to uh, somebody that worked on Boondock 2, Paul Alessi. 
he was a producer friend of mine and I sent it to him and he said brother we got to make this into a film and uh, so me and Paul Alessi have been pursuing getting this made for 12 years we didn't find we didn't find ourselves on the movie set for until 2019 um, but uh, he and I have been actually pushing this since man since 2007 and luckily we found you know financing through Lucas Oil they make they make uh, race car oil and streetcar oil, for that matter. And and Forrest Lucas and his son, Morgan Lucas, were grateful enough to read the script, love it, and take a chance on us. And that's how it happened. You know, a, a lot of times a story like this can, you know, ha- have trouble finding it in the studio market mm-hmm. because it's not 100% fighting and violence, and yet it's not a 100% love story either. It's kind of uh, somewhere in the middle. And so luckily we found a perfect pairing, and... Man, you know, that's how it happened. That's how it happened. Well, good things come to those who wait, let me tell you. I appreciate it. Wow. And as you said, this strikes such an emotional chord. And this is all about heart, family, friendship, integrity. There is so much integrity in this film, in the character of Mickey, in Layla, in Taco. Maurice Comte is fabulous. Yeah, I, I I agree. I agree. He, he he was he was amazing in that role. I thought we we you know, we we got so lucky with with Katrina, with Maurice, with Reno. Reno's one of my favorite actors. Not I, I, I adore I, I think him. You're hard pressed to find anybody better better than Katrina. I mean, she has such a pathos behind the eyes that that that, that just sends a, an indelible message to your soul. I I couldn't be happier. On every level here. How difficult was it? And something that you do that I really love is that these characters are fully fleshed out, Sean. As you well know, so often the supporting characters are not fleshed out. Or if they are, it's done through exposition that gets tedious and wasted. Here, we don't have any of that. Your entire structure, setting this up with Taco being interviewed and telling this story is perfect that fills in exposition as needed throughout the film with the timeline while everything is still happening on screen so nothing is wasted but it's very effective so that visually we're engaged and listening at the same time without having to pay attention to what character is saying what it's very effectively done well i appreciate it you know that that was uh, something that came around in 2007 when i wrote it and i thought you know, if if I'm going to have to scrape the financing together, I I needed a way to be able to tell the story and, if need be, not shoot things. So I could tell them from a recollective standpoint. And really, it, you, you would have to cast the right taco, but his ability to tell the parts of the story that may or may not be too big and too expensive to shoot. So it was that way from the inception, and I'm, I'm very grateful that he, he didn't just pull it off. He knocked it over the center field fence out of the park. Absolutely. And every time the camera picks him up, and you've got a great DP, Ruben Steinberg's work is is absolutely phenomenal in this film. Yeah, he is great. He, the way he frames faces and lets us and lets the camera rest so we see the emotion. So much of this film, it's not just the tie-in with Dennis Quaid's line about, I like to look a man in the eye. I wanted to look this guy in the eye. The entire film, you see so much in the eyes, 
Steinberg lets the camera rest on front fa full frontal facials so that we see the empathy, the sympathy, the love on everyone's face. And it's truly wonderful. Well, I appreciate it. You know, I, I, he is an amazing DP, and that, that was crucial to this story. You know, a lot of times, you know, in, in what's, what's considered a fight film, you know, you, 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 you want to see everything happen, you know, in a why. So everything is, but the parts of this film, the emotion really takes place behind the eyes. Mm -hmm. so it was very important to really get inside the soul in a number of these scenes. And I think he he did that to perfection. I really do. And then you bring in Brett Hedlund, who is a wonderful editor, and just cuts that and keeps the flow going so that there's a great flow that mirrors what you're doing on the mat. You know, it, 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 it's crazy to have an end result that you know with something that's so personal and close to the bone but uh i couldn't be more proud of this and you know then you know the, the score done by darius holbert I, I thought he did an amazing job the stuff that he did in in the the, the conclusion I, I i think i think darius is i think darius holbert will win an academy award someday every element of this sean is so well done and seamlessly put together to create a fully fleshed out story that you don't want to see once. You want to see it again, and you want to see it again. Because... Oh, well, your lips to God's ears, it, I hope so. Because so much of the emotion and the themes that you have here, number one, it's at a time where we really need these themes now. We really need to see films about heart and integrity. And, yeah. and family. We really need to see that now. And to have that come out packaged like this and then watching you just explode physically on screen, is that's, that's an added bonus as far as well, I'm concerned. I, 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 certainly, I certainly hope it's embraced similarly with the public because, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's a very special film to me. It comes from the deepest part of my soul it really does and i know that things like that are thrown around in writing circles but it but it it, it truly does and I, I i hope people give the film a shot you know it's a tiny little film you know it's a minnow swimming among sharks but uh i'm very 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 proud of this film and i, I hope one day my kids will go you know what my daddy made this <laughs> that's what every daddy wants let me yeah, tell you yeah let me tell you. I'm curious, you know, how precious were you with the words on the page once you started shooting? It's, uh, it's, it's subjective from scene to scene. Certainly there are some, you know, as a writer, I've, I've always been a big, the biggest mistake you can make on set is tell an actor to improvise. Mm -hmm. Because, <laughs> you know, it'll never stop. But they'll always come up, then you'll come across an actor that when they say something, it's better than the word on the page, you know? So, you know, it's, it's a case-by-case -case basis. There, there, there's a lot of things that we were pretty strict on. Um, I, at least I hope I have a certain economy with words. And when it, whenever you do that, every word is heavily weighted. Mm -hmm. um, and so in this respect, everybody, ev everybody was very true to the material. And me as an actor... I've always found that the better written a script is, the less, the least, 
improvisation is necessary. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had some great actors that certainly on occasion delivered a, a line a little bit differently that's even better. But uh, every, everybody stayed true to the, to the core of the story. And it, 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 it warmed my heart, you know? Mm. How, how difficult is that for you or challenging for you knowing what's on the page, but then you have to be in character and acting and also then going into jujitsu. You know, I, I don't want to make light of it by saying it was easy, but th- these are my daily life. Mm-hmm. Um, acting, I've done it now for 30 years, so I don't want to act like it. I can do it as an afterthought. I, I don't want to, that sounds egotistical and it sounds like you don't care. But at some point, it does become, those emotions are easily accessed. And jiu-jitsu is something that I do every single day of my life. Mm-hmm. So those techniques and that physicality is easily accessed. So it, it, it wasn't difficult. And, you know, I, I'd love to tell you I had to go to the depths of hell and I had to really pull <laughs> something out of my soul. But the truth is, it, these are things that I do every day of my life. So being able to pull that out of my toolkit, it wasn't that difficult for me. And I don't want to make light of it because because I do value, you know, whether, whether people think I'm a good writer, or a shitty writer, or a good actor, wh- whatever level of technique I have, I can pull it out quite readily. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, it wasn't difficult to do. I navigate on set. Was there a learning curve for you as a screenwriter going, jumping from, writing this in your bed in 2007 to finally then, okay, we've got money, we're going to make this film. Was there a screenwriter's learning curve for you once you got into that position where it's, okay, we got to polish this up, we've got to do this? Were there any constraints put on you or demands that producers wanted to see? Financier constraints? Yeah, there are certainly examples of that, but generally speaking, um, you know, you know, say if we, if we if we couldn't get a specific location, so I had to rewrite the scene to accommodate a different location. But mm-hmm. you know, again, I've been doing this for thirty years, and I've rewritten scripts and even scenes uh, for at least the last twenty. So this is nothing new for me. How to adapt? You know, everything, anything can take place in your brain. But whenever you get you know into the physicality, the real world, you realize, wait a minute, we actually can't procure that. So we, I, then I'd have to open my laptop and I'd have to write something that we could procure. So nothing really shocked me or surprised me. Uh, there were hurdles to jump over, but none that I didn't know would potentially expose themselves. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, you know, it, it, again, it's been something I've been doing for 30. It's hard, hard to imagine. Actually, yeah, thir- mm-hmm. 30 years. 30 years. It's crazy. Um, so nothing, nothing was really shocking or derailing. You know, I, I'm, I'm used to making these adjustments and these last minute navigations, but nothing, nothing that took us off course. We stayed true to the core soul of the story. And uh, it, it never strayed far at all from what I wrote in 2007. Wow. Yeah. Well, this is a timeless story. And I think that's one of the th- reasons why it jumped out at me as a lot of the essences are akin to Rocky Balboa. That is a timeless story about what is in the heart of a champion, the heart of a man. And that's exactly what you have here. It doesn't matter what time, what decade, what era, it is timeless. So it easily can withstand that gap from 2007 to 2020. And I just think that's fabulous. 
one thing that I'm really curious about, because you obviously are doing your own jujitsu there. How difficult was it to find partners, particularly Edson Barbosa? Did he do his own work on the mat with you? Yep. Yeah, you know, that's one thing we did is we cast all incredibly decorated martial artists. So we didn't have to rehearse things over and over again. You know, Edson's a highly decorated UFC fighter. So he showed up. I told him, I just verbally described what we're going to do. I'm going to do this. You're going to counter with this. Then you're going to parry. Then you're going to transition to takedown. And, and, we, and we just shot it. We didn't even have to rehearse it because these are things that, you know, these martial artists do 100 times a day, seven days a week for 20 years. So everybody did it. Uh, it, nobody got injured. It, it, it was uh, John Kowalski, who is a black belt from my own academy. Uh, I had a big sparring scene with him, but I, we have countless mat hours together doing the exact same thing. So the, this, he, was a, he was an original sparring partner for, oh, my God, the last 15 years. Wow. You know, and he's also a jiu-jitsu black belt. It's, it's uh, you know, you cast highly decorated people, then you don't have to worry about their technical ability to deliver not only accurately, but in a tiny window of time as well. Mm -hmm. How much time did you have to shoot this? We shot that inside of a month. Wow. We, we, yeah, we did. We, we did this on a shoestring budget, but like I said, from 2007, I wrote it in such a way that we could get around some of the big expensive uh, sets and production elements, and we did that through the recollective storytelling of uh, one of the characters. Hopefully we pulled it off. In in hindsight, after the finished project product, I'm incredibly proud of the result. I really am. You should be. It belies being a, what I like to call low-budget, no-budget, micro-budget films. You, you've got first-class talent actors cast here who deliver at every level. I love seeing Ali Afshar on screen. I always love seeing Ali when he pops up on screen. He's always fun. But at every turn here, Sean, you deliver. Born a champion is truly a champion of a film. Uh, oh, I'm, I'm incredibly flattered. Thank you for that. It really is. So let me ask you one more question so that Danny can wrap up your day. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> no worries. No worries. I'm curious, what was the learning curve or what did you learn about yourself in making this film this highly personal film this film that you scripted beginning to end what did you learn about yourself as an actor as a filmmaker that you will now take forward into future projects and hopefully many of those may be you writing more scripts well, I think, you know, it, it, it certainly wasn't anything that I didn't know existed on its own, but the biggest lesson is that some things are worth fighting for. And uh, this film was worth fighting for. It was, it was worth seeing through to completion, not only to completion, but to completion the correct way. And it was an effort at some times, but uh, I'm very happy that Forrest Lucas, Morgan Lucas believed in me and allowed me to execute this correctly. I, I, I'm incredibly and eternally grateful to those to those two guys. Well, I'm eternally grateful too because I love this film. Well, I, I appreciate it. I, I do. Really do. Oh, Sean, thank you so so much for taking time to talk to me about Born a Champion. 
this is of course thank, thank you for talking to me thank you very much and thank you for the cra crazy feedback it really <laughs> honestly it touches my heart <laughs> well and hopefully we won't wait 20 years before we talk again yes hopefully not <laughs> oh sean thank you so much And that was Sean Patrick Flannery talking about Born a Champion. It is available now, folks. So check it out. Well worth your time. Uh, and yes, have tissues ready. I'm telling you, you get to the third act, have tissues ready. And now we're going to shift gears here. And we're going to jump into and welcome Tyler Wayne. Are you there, Tyler? I am here. Hi. Hi, Tyler. How are you? I am good. Thank you. How are you? Well, I'm very happy to be talking to you about this little film, Goodbye Butterfly. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is, I didn't know what to expect. I knew it was going to be some kind of murder mystery. I did mm. not expect it to be as clean, as cleanly designed and straightforward in its storytelling, um, and still have some nice twists, and you you actually create some ambiguity regarding the murder suspect. Yeah, we hope so. You um, sure do. You sure do. It's not cut and dried here. Who who may have done it? Um. <laughs> <laughs> um a good portion of the film, I am looking at your character of Tyler of Tyler Long. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> I'm looking I'm looking at at Tyler in the film as a as a suspect. Um Oh really? I this is the first time I've heard that. Oh. Uh, well, it's when you when you're denying something or you're getting as emotional and almost enraged as we see Tyler getting in that third act of the film, really the second act moving into the third act, generally mm. when people get that vocal and that outraged, it's because they're covering something up. They want to deflect uh, yeah, to someone else. Point. And I'm going like, oh my God, oh my God. But then we still have these other threads out there. We have the detective. Yeah. We have the detective barking up another tree. We have a grieving father barking up another tree. So you create this, and when you're watching it, your mind can follow each path. So that when we get to the ultimate reveal, and the ultimate, ultimate reveal, which is, it is, no pun intended, it is killer. Um, <laughs> uh, I was really, uh, Tyler, this belies a first-time feature for you. Um, I am oh, so, so impressed with this film. You keep us guessing. You keep us on our toes. And thanks to your casting, we become very invested in the character of Ryan beautifully played by Adam mm -hmm. Donchick, um, grieving and, and outraged over the murder of his little five-year-old daughter. And also, mm -hmm. your character, his BFF, who is also the little girl Mia's godfather. So, right, yes. And seeing this, 
from the father's point of view, from the male gaze, the male perspective, is something we don't see that much. Generally, you expect to see the mother crying and going to pieces and all of this. But to see the father and another strong male figure in the deceased child's life, they're the ones who are outraged. They're the ones who are incensed. They're the ones who want justice. It's not a, a perspective we normally see. And I love that you went there with this. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Where did, yeah, think... where did this story come from, Tyler? <laughs> I, this is, um... you know, uh, this is not a story you create sitting down at breakfast or even sitting in the bar at night when we could go sit in bars at night. Um, right. Uh, you know, where did this come from? Well, the the answer might shock you a little bit. So, um, really, the origin of it, I'll try to get through this quickly, is we were, I was, I formed a production company that was supposed to do a joint production with this other company on this other project that ended up falling through. And so, you know, you're left with, like, a third of the budget of that, and you still have to answer back to your investors who are expecting you to deliver a product. And I was just like, well, I'm not going to tell them until I have something else that I can, you know, sell them on. So I just went to work on, on a new script that, you know, with the limited resources that we have, you're just kind of like, you just start from kind of this focus of having to write a story that revolves around, a few people in a room and then very limited locations and very limited cast. And, um, honestly, that's where the story grew from. Like every, all this, like, I'm so glad you like all the twists and turns and everything, but everything is kind of going back to the limitations of what you're able to do logistically. And it's just like, well, how do you keep this interesting, you know, inside of the central location inside mm -hmm. of like, the limited number of cast members that you have. So it really, the whole story just came out of practicality and sort of building it, reverse engineering it, if you will. Uh, you, you did an amazing job. But I have to say, the way you start this film, uh, and we meet the little girl Mia, played by Addison Ross, Talk She's about crazy, talk she? about super precociousness and adorableness. Um, yeah. This little girl steals your heart at the beginning. You immediately see the father-daughter connection. And then you waste no time jumping into the tragedy. In less than seven minutes, we have met, we have fallen in love with this father-daughter, and we see her bloodied out in the, in the woods on dead, dried mm -hmm. leaves. And you spared no blood. <laughs> you may have... <laughs> you Send a little criticism about that. <laughs> you know, I think that's very important that you have, because you really need that for the shock value. Yeah. And you and, and your cinematographer, Jose Zambrano Casella, um Great job there setting that up. And then you bring in Brad McLaughlin's editing. You know, yeah. got that pacing so right. So that, boom, under 10 minutes, man, we're ready to go. Who did this to this child? Mm -hmm. 
and you wasted no time there. So you give us the setup really quickly, and then we get into the who done it and what's being done about it. And yeah. that, and the fact that you have this constant dynamic between Ryan and Tyler moves this along as they bounce theories off of each other and they bounce perspectives off of each other. I think you very wisely, you get mom, mom goes away. Mom's mad at dad, mom's miserable, mom goes to stay with her sister, which sets us up with the two males. And then our, our detective, played by Marie Burke. Uh, yeah. But that... How did you go about structuring that from a pacing standpoint to keep that going and to set it up for Ryan and Tyler going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth with visuals and dialogue? Because it works so well. Well, on the Ryan and Tyler angle, I thought it was really important to, um, you know, I really wanted it to be a story about two guys who didn't know what they were doing. Um, because we've kind of seen these types of stories with like the Liam Neeson character who right. has a very specific skill set. And then he, you know, just from minute one kind of has a plan and knows how to execute it. And like these two guys are basically just schmoes who kind they, of don't they have know no what they're clue. doing. They are clueless. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the whole point is, you know, Tyler kind of acts tougher and acts, and, you know, he maybe has, flirted with some some criminal stuff in the past, but nothing like this. Right. And he's, they're just both completely out of their depth. Um, so I wanted, honestly, the Tyler character was there to provide Ryan an outlet so that we always kind of know what Ryan's thinking and what he's going through. And um, he has somebody to bounce his ideas off of. And in terms of the pacing, I mean, the first, you know, the, the first, seven minutes and trying to get through all of that set up really quickly is because I think we, we're all familiar with this type of right. story and this type of setup. So it was like, let's just try to get through that as efficiently as possible and just try to get straight to the meat of the story, which is hopefully what people are tuning in to watch. Mm -hmm. And, and you do that so well, but what's interesting, it's like having Tyler there for, as Ryan's outlet, you have a shift point in there where suddenly Ryan becomes the outlet for Tyler to vent. And yeah. I, I love that. That works really well. And the chemistry that you and Adam have really comes through on the screen. You believe that these guys are friends. You believe that Tyler would have been picked by Adam to be Mia's godfather. There is never a question about that. But I love that shift where first it's, it's Ryan doing all the venting and Tyler trying to talk him down and make him see reason and think things through. But then you get to that moment and no, then it's reversed. And yeah, and that's where ambiguity steps in, in spades. And I love yeah, it. Well, Tyler kind of has to, in a lot of ways, represent the, the selfish side of it that, you know, Ryan as the lead character is not really allowed to, to encompass because, right. you know, Tyler represents the self-preservation side. 
So it's like, as you're doing this, like his constant goal is like, we have to get away with this. You know, Ryan wants the truth and he wants justice. Tyler wants those things too, but his, you know, his main goal is, is self-preservation is, is getting away with this and not going to prison. Um, so I thought it was important to give all of that, you know, the proper weight that it needed, but not have it put on Ryan because it, it just, it, it makes him less, I guess, sympathetic. Yes. And, you know, because you do keep sympathy and empathy going through this. Um, Hopefully. I think you do. Um, now, I've got to ask you, where did you, i got to go back to Addison Ross here. Where did you find her? <laughs> she is the discovery of a lifetime, Tyler. Isn't she? Ah. Like, yeah. She's a star. She's, and on that was the hardest role to cast. It took forever, and we were coming down to the wire, and it was so tough because it's like, you need this five-year-old girl to open the movie, you need to fall in love with her inside of two minutes and then, you know, have her break out of your heart when, when, you know, we find out what's happened to her. And it's like, we probably looked at about a thousand girls and, and it, it was, that took a while. Oh, she is just, she just commands the screen. The minute yeah. she's on the screen, I, she, it is her. Uh, I can't wait to see where she goes with her career because she is. It, uh, you and me both. <laughs> wow. But I was. That's what I mean. It was so hard because if you like, you know, if you don't fall in love with this girl inside of two minutes, then the, the rest of the movie doesn't work. Yeah. So because then you don't care. Yeah, that was super stressful. You, yeah. Then you don't care. But now you bring in an actor who I love seeing. I love seeing Andrew Lauer. He plays the Olsen's neighbor, Stan Granger. <laughs> um, Andrew is perfectly cast here. <laughs> I mean, absolutely yeah. perfect. Um, and we don't, we're not going to give away any spoilers here, people, so don't worry about that. But, you know, how did you find Andrew? Because on his own, there are a lot of moments where he is just sitting almost like a statue at his kitchen table. And yeah. he has this look about him and everything you see him in. Um, he makes you think there is something really disturbing about this person. Uh, right. And, but to see him and it's chilling the way that Jose holds the holds frame on him it really it's it chills you watching that with a glass of milk in front of him on the table (laughs) okay how many uh, how many grown men do we see with a glass of milk just not drinking it just sitting on the not even yeah just just sitting there sitting there with his hands (laughs) folded and the glass of milk sitting there like are you waiting for it to jump up into your into your mouth, or you know what's the deal? Um, what led you to Andrew to play the role? His, of his audition. <laughs> it, it, you know, uh, everybody you know sent in their tapes, and he was <laughs> one of the ones where he just stood out. Like it was just he was the guy 
from the first time. And then like nobody even kind of came close to what Andy did. And, you know, I met with him in person um, and he's actually in, in real life. He's exactly like that, but not creepy. <laughs> it's more like funny. And like, he's like so dry and just like, no, like you can't ever kind of figure out what is going on or what he's going to say, but it, it's usually something pretty hilarious. No, I just, um, I'll see him in anything because yeah. he, he always delivers no matter how small the role, how big the role, um, you know, turn on your TV people and you're going to see Andrew Lauer popping up on something <laughs> at any given yeah. time. Uh, he's one of those faces, one of those terrific character actors. And to see him get a meteor part here, like the neighbor, like Stan, I just love it. Mm -hmm. I love it. I mean, that, that, that was like icing on the cake for me with this one, Tyler. Yeah, he was, there were, he was a no brainer. You know, there were a lot of. There were a lot of roles where, you know, it was like this guy or that guy, and then you meet him, and it comes down to chemistry. But, like, Andy was just the one guy who just, like, leapt out, and there was, like, it's like there was nobody else that was going to work in yeah. the role besides him. I can just imagine, because seeing what he does on screen, um, if he brought even half of that in an audition, it's like, that's it. I'm done. <laughs> I got who I want. Um, oh no! It was all there. Yeah, wow, wow. You know, I I love because this is low budget, no budget, micro budget filmmaking with a look that mm -hmm. totally belies that. Um, you've got some great visual contrast here, and I'm curious working do, working with your production design. I like where you really put the effort. And in developing the contrast between Mia's bedroom and mm -hmm. her door that is covered with, with butterflies, three-dimensional, not stick-on pasted yeah. butterflies. These are all three-dimensional, probably have little Velcro on the back of them or something, can stick to the door. But yeah. the attention to detail, the variety, the color, the life, uh, that we have here. And interestingly, you've got one moment in the film where, you know, Ryan picks up a butterfly off the floor. It's a black butterfly. Mm -hmm. And reapplies it to the door. And I found that really interesting, that it was a black butterfly that was picked up. But all these different yeah. colors. And then you contrast that with the starkness of Stan's house and then with the danger and the yellow exterior, the caution metaphor of this other location where another girl is supposedly being held captive uh, mm -hmm. or dead. Uh, we, we really don't know. But I love the contrast that you created from a production design standpoint and I'm curious how you went about developing that, that visual tone and look. Well, so some of it was like the, the design of the butterflies on the door was always like I had designed that before I even finished the script. Like, so I always knew I was going to open and close on that shot. 
And, you know, we had found those butterflies online and ordered them. And then the rest of it, I mean, like you said, Jose is amazing. Our production designer, uh, Ryan Small, was amazing as well. But, you know, not to take anything away from them, there was a huge luck factor in a lot of this stuff, too, because... You know, at a certain budget level, like, you just can't afford to do certain things. Like, you could say, like, oh, I wish you know, this room was orange or this room was red. But you just, unless you find those rooms, you can't afford to really change things right. outside of, you know, the locations that you're finding. So a lot of it was just, like, the luck of, like, us finding these places that, like, totally worked and had, like different visual elements from other locations mm -hmm. that really set them apart. Um, so yeah, there's a certain amount of skill and a certain amount of like predetermined design in there, but also like at this scale of filmmaking, a certain amount of luck. Mm -hmm. Well, and I have to say, I love the lensing. You've got a basement scene, very set quite a few scenes set in a basement that you've got plastic hung. Plastic on the floor, <laughs> plastic on the walls, plastic. Uh, and not the best plastic in the world. Let's face right. it. Right. And it's, it's no secret to say that uh, this, is, <laughs> this is part of the doings of Ryan and Tyler. <laughs> so <laughs> it, we, didn't, we didn't go to um, investigate murder for dummies uh, for this one. Um, but the lensing of that and the, and the lighting, you get a really sickly, creepy tone. Mm -hmm. And with the color behind the plastic, you've got that hospital kind of green on two walls. You've got a yellowy kind of tinge on another wall. And then to have the plastic over it and have the light reflecting, it really adds to the ambient nature of those sequences right. and it it really it serves the story so well and what I, i'm just you know i'm glad it worked like a, a lot of it was was just luck you know it's like getting that location and then like jose like being able to capture it the way that he did and you know he's great at just like being able to do a lot with very, very little. Um, the plastic was like, I figured these guys, okay, they don't know what they're doing, yeah. but we've all seen Dexter. We've all seen some type of crime shows. Like they would have the sense to say like, okay, we need to wear gloves. We need to put up plastic. Like we need to take some form of precaution. So they're like, they're kind of trying to do what they can within the lines of what they've seen. But um, yeah, like, like you're saying, like the way that whole, location came together and ended up looking the way it did on screen there's there's just a huge luck factor in that and there's there's no way to to deny that because that was one of the last locations that we found we were looking and looking and looking and just not finding anything that we wanted and uh you know that one came in at the last minute it, and it, if it hadn't i don't know what we would have done it works beautifully for this film. Yeah, I'm curious, what was the most challenging aspect of bringing this this story to life, Tyler? Especially, this is your first feature. Uh, mm. You're 
directing yourself, which of course bodes the question, begs the question, you know, how well does actor Tyler listen to director Tyler? Uh, <laughs> so, you know, what, what was the biggest challenge here for you? What was the learning curve? Uh, you know, I, I honestly can't tell you what the biggest challenge is because I'm still like, as of, you know, as we're doing right now, we're still promoting the movie and we're still, you know, selling it. And and it's all just a huge learning process for me. So it's probably going to take me a little while to digest everything and kind of sit down and go, what was like the biggest challenge? Um, as far as directing yourself, I don't, you know, I mean, actor Tyler kind of knows what director Tyler wants. <laughs> um, the the only thing is, you know, I hadn't done it in a long time. I kind of came from an acting background. And then, like, you ha- I haven't done it in, like, 15 years. And, you know, you've got Andy just killing it. You've got Adam just killing it, Marie killing it. And all of them are, like, one, two take people. So, you wow. know, like you never need to go beyond two or three takes with them. And then, you know, and then you've got to jump in front and do your thing. And it's, you don't want to do more takes than everybody else, because then you just look very self-serving and like, <laughs> but at the same time, it's like, it, was it any good? Or And I think we kind of like cut right on the edge of it, because once you get into the editing room, I found like Adam, like 90% of the time we're using his take one, Andy, Marie, 90% of the time we're using their take one. Um, me, consistently, every single time, take two. <laughs> oh, my God. You end up having to do a little bit more on yourself because it's like, oh, you're not as good as them. Oh, my God. Now, do you find, because you come out of an acting background, do you find that helps helped you as a director in working with your actors, in conveying what you needed, what you wanted? Yes. There's no other way around. In fact, the reason that I did it, the reason that I acted in this movie, uh, being a first-time director, was because you don't have a track record. You don't have a resume. You don't have any pedigree. And you are acting, you're asking these, these actors who are going to be kind of preserved up there in amber forever to trust you and they have no reason to you know you've never made a movie you've never written anything they have literally no reason to trust you um and i figured the best way to do that would be just to like not ask them to do anything that i'm not willing to do myself so you know immediately by being like in the cast with them and being in the scenes with them it lets them know, too, that, like, especially as a first-time director, that you understand their process, you understand their concerns, um, and that you're one of them. And so, yeah, I think, I think it's really important. Um, there's probably a lot of directors out there that um, don't come from the acting background, and, and they're still able to, you know, really get the performances. But um, I definitely approach it from that understanding, from that base. Mm-hmm. You know, what was, as you were writing this script, were you, did you already know you'd be directing it? And were you already thinking of the visuals, doing rough storyboards or stick figure drawings for what you thought this might look like? Um, yes, 
to answer the first question, yes, I knew I was going to direct it because this co-production we were supposed to do with this other company, um, I was going to be directing that. And we were going to be co-financing it. Um, so when I, you know, went back to like to the drawing board to do this, I knew it was something that I was going to direct. Um, and yeah, actually, in my script, I mean, I never include camera angles. I never include shots because I just. A, I don't like to do that. You're not supposed to do that. And it, I think by doing that, it locks you into thinking about the scene a certain way instead of, you know, approaching it flexibly um, when you're actually on location. But no, I definitely, I'll indicate um, in, in like descriptions and things how I want it to look and how I want like scenes to play out. Like, for example, I always knew like that we were going to go from, you know, Mia's body up into the sky and then come back down mm-hmm. on the Olsen house and have the car come into frame. Um, so, yeah, um, I, I definitely, I would say probably at least 70% of it, I've already, like, visualized how I want it to play out. And then, of course, you get to the actual location and, you know, you have to make those adjustments based on what you actually have in the real world. But um, as long as you keep like the basic idea of what you had in mind at mm-hmm. the forefront, rather than like any specific details, it usually ends up working out pretty well. Well, it all worked out really well for you with Goodbye Butterfly. You know, unfortunately, that is all the time we have today, Tyler. But before I let you go, where can everybody see Goodbye Butterfly right now? Uh, pretty much any place where you can get video on demand, you can get it on iTunes, Amazon Prime Video, Google Play, uh, Redbox On Demand, Voodoo, Fandango. Um, and if you go to goodbyebutterflymovie.com, um, you can find all the platforms that it's available on, as well as cable providers and uh, cable VOD where you can watch the movie. Well, this is another winner. Another winner. I'm on a roll today with films that are really good that people should see. (laughs) Oh, Tyler, this has been so wonderful having you on the show and talking to you about Goodbye Butterfly. I hope you'll come back on the show with your next project. Absolutely. It's It's been a privilege. Thank you so much for having me, Debbie. Oh, Tyler, thank you. And I hopefully I'll talk to you sooner rather than later. Yes, hopefully. Okay, have a good day. Bye-bye. You too. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. And that was Tyler Wayne, writer, director, and one of the actors in Goodbye Butterfly. You got a bunch of films that we talked about today. All of them well worth a look. Goodbye Butterfly, Born a Champion, and then, of course, our fun film, Psycho Gorman, which I'm going to watch again. I'll admit it. I got to watch it again. Volcanic UFO Mysteries documentary and Agent Revelation um, action, and it makes you think. Um, So that is all the time we have today. Next week, our exclusive interview with Fisher Stevens talking about his new film, Palmer. And we're going to have father-daughter filmmakers here talking about an animated short that is eligible for Oscar consideration. Uh, called Wind Up. And you can, everyone can see that right now on YouTube. Um, it's free. 
You can see Wind Up right now. So if you want to check it out now and then tune in next week, you can hear what our father-daughter filmmakers have to say about Wind Up. So I can't wait for that. And then, oh, what do we have? More father-daughters on the 8th, I think. Okay, well, it's going to be a fun, fun. We're now, I'm now booking in March. So we got February locked and loaded for you. So until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.